friends, what an encouraging message <coughs> that God is not dead. And because he's not dead, we can experience peace on earth today. Today, our sermon text is from Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 14. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. We're continuing today our season of Advent. The word Advent simply means the coming of the arrival. And uh, this is a season that Christians have observed for over a millennium. All of you, in some sense, likely have observed Advent in the past. If you've ever been present at a Christmas Eve service, that's an Advent service. During Advent, we teach our hearts to do something we don't do well. We teach our hearts to wait. Advent is a season of waiting. As we see the, ca the candles, right, to my left, to your right, two of them are lit, three of them are not, and we wait. We wait for the day that they will all be lit. Advent is a season of waiting. As we remember the first coming of Christ, we remember that he is coming again. Each week we'll remember one word that helps us wait for the coming of Christ. Hope last week, peace, joy, and love. This is what the candles represent. Finally, on Christmas Eve, we'll light up the Christ candle, which reminds us that Christmas is about waiting. But Christmas is also promises being fulfilled. Today we turn to the word peace. Often, Boaz and I will step out into our backyard right before bedtime and we'll sit on lawn chairs and watch the dark, starry, starry sky. We use that time to talk about God and his creation. We sit out there for as long as we can, at least for as long as the mosquitoes will let us. And we allow the darkness of the night to strike us with awe. I wonder if you've ever done that, sat outside and gazed the dark night sky. On one hand, there is something mesmerizing about the darkness of the night. But at the same time, there is something unsettling about it, isn't there? In our text for today, we find shepherds who were keeping watch by night. No light. No, just complete darkness. And in the midst of their night watch, they find 
themselves frightened by the appearing of a host of angels. And yet, in the midst of their fear, they receive a message of peace. Friends, when the message of the gospel shines into the darkness of our hearts, we go from fearful, unsettled, insecure to complete peace. You, you may have walked into this place today knowing that your heart is without peace. Maybe you've come here because it's Christmas time. Maybe somebody invited you. Maybe it's a tradition. But your heart is without peace. Maybe you come regularly and attend our church. Maybe you're a member of our church. But your heart is restless today. Maybe you're concerned about a, a conflict. Maybe a relationship. Maybe you're concerned about your health. Maybe you're concerned about someone you love. Maybe you're concerned about your finances. It's hard to have peace while so many things concern us. But what I want you to understand today is this. Christmas is about peace. But what is peace? One of the most important words in the Old Testament is the word shalom. Shalom is wholeness. Shalom is calm in the midst of the storm. God is shalom. Paul tells the Ephesians that he, that is Jesus Christ, is our peace. doesn't just give us peace. He gives us himself. And along with him, we have peace. Christmas is about peace because Christmas is about Christ. And if you have Christ, you can have peace, even facing storms. Peace is not just the absence of conflict, but an experience of wholeness that affects us internally and externally because God is ours. So in light of the peace we experience in Christ today, as we dive into our passage, we'll consider three things. One, we'll consider a weak people. That's us. And two, we'll consider a winsome message. That's the gospel. And then three, we'll consider a wonderful Savior. That's Christ. So a weak people. Our passage today follows the birth narrative of Jesus in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is a city where King David was born. Not a big city. Not a very large, influential city. But that's where the great king was born. Therefore, it is an important city in the biblical storyline. But more importantly, Bethlehem is the city, the Messiah. Israel's long-awaited king would come from. And within this region, we find our shepherds keeping watch at night. Shepherds also play a major role in the biblical narrative. I mean, just think about it. Abel was a shepherd. Abraham and his sons were shepherds. Moses was a shepherd 
during his time in Midian. Young King David was a shepherd. Many others throughout the Bible were shepherds. Shepherds play a major role in the biblical narrative because they played a major role in the culture. But shepherds were just average citizens. They were the quintessential average citizens. They were simple. Their labor required little skill or education. They worked many hours without much activity. Often, as we see today, they worked graveyard shifts. They worked around animals. They smelled like animals. They often kept flocks that weren't their own. So their financial benefit was minimal. But not only were shepherds average citizens, shepherds were very vulnerable. They were the first line of defense for the sheep. If the sheep were attacked by wild animals, they were expected to lay down their lives for the sheep. They were exposed to the weather. They were exposed to thieves and often had to fend them off. And yet, it is to this simple and vulnerable group of men that God chooses to first display His full glory in the face of His Son. It is to this group that God chooses to first share the good news of the gospel. Now, this shouldn't be surprising to us, right? Throughout the Bible, God chooses the weak and not the strong. Throughout the Bible, God displays His favor to the lowly, but not to the proud. Proverbs 29, 23, one's pride will bring him low. But he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. God chose Moses to speak to Pharaoh not because he was eloquent in speech. God chose Israel among other nations, not because Israel was numerous or great. God chose David over his brothers, not because he was the strongest or the most handsome. God God chose you, if you're trusting in Christ, not because you were great but precisely because you are not great. 1 Corinthians 1.27 But God chose what is foolish, foolish in the world. That's us, friends. Okay? That's us. If you're trusting in Christ, God chose you because to the world it is folly. Why? To shame the wise. God chose what is weak. That's us. In the world to shame the strong. And why does God do this? So that his power may be magnified through our weakness. It is not the great kings of earth that receive the news of Christ's coming. It is the shepherds. Humble, simple. Pride 
robs God of His glory. But humility puts the spotlight of worship on God. If we're able to say, yes, you chose me, but not because of anything, then all the glory goes to God and none to us. Pride is the root of every sin. Every sin from Adam and Eve eating the fruit in the garden to Judah's betrayal of Jesus can be explained through the lenses of pride. Fourth century theologian St. Augustine of Epo said, There never can be and never, there never can have been and never can be and there never shall be any sin without pride. Friends, we all struggle with pride. The shepherds stand before us to remind us we must be humble. The question is not whether or not we are prideful. The verdict is out and we are. The question is how much pride do we have in our hearts and how does it manifest itself? And as Christians, we're called to constantly be killing pride. If you want to know more or look more into your own heart and dig deeper into this issue, let me recommend a, a small booklet uh, called From Pride to Humility by Stuart Stott, by biblical counselor Stuart Stott. Highly recommend that. But why should we overcome pride? Because pride is the enemy of peace. God did not reveal himself to the prideful, but to the humble. No, the prideful were left without God, blinded, trusting in their own strength. And if God himself is our peace, okay, if God is peace, and God does not reveal himself to the prideful, but to the humble, to be separated from God by pride is to have no peace. Friends, we're not the ones who boast in our strength. Let us boast not in our abilities. Let us not boast in our spirituality. Let us not boast in our ability to not sin, to maintain spiritual activity. Let us not boast in our moral superiority. Let us boast, let us not boast in our religious life. But let us boast in our weakness. Let us boast in Christ. It is better to be a weak shepherd walking in darkness, but who, by the grace of God, is able to see a great light than to be a strong king, than to be in palaces and castles, than to have many servants, and to live in the eyes of the world a fully dignified life but never see the light of Christ. Friend, Christ draws near to the one who knows his weakness, and he opposes the one who thinks of himself strong. But what does it mean to boast in our weakness? Well, I think the Apostle Paul helps us understand this here. To boast in our weaknesses means to recognize our sinful condition. In 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul says, The saints trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world 
to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. If you notice here that Paul refers to himself as the foremost of sinners in the present. I am the foremost. Friends, we are not a people who recognize we've sinned in the past but are now examples of morality. No, we depend on Christ today, this very moment. We're not to call people to look to ourselves, but we are to call people to look to Christ. And the only way that we can be examples to others is if we are looking to Christ ourselves. He alone is our righteousness. But I also believe that boasting in our weaknesses means to recognize that God gives grace to the weak. It is not simply to say that everything we do is bad. There is good in what we do, but we do it according to the grace that God gives. 1 Corinthians 15.10, here's Paul again. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Paul is talking about his role as an apostle. Humility is not constant self-pity, but a recognition that we fully depend on God for all things. We recognize that God's grace does enable us to live a godly life in this present age. But listen, it is not us. It is Christ in us. Friend, if Christ wasn't in you, you would be utterly unable to do anything of any moral significance. You would be utterly unable to do anything that would please God. But if Christ is in you, you are able to do things that are honoring to God when you do obey God rightly. It is not you. It is Christ in you. We are weak, but when we are weak, we run to God for grace. We can be strong, but when we are strong, we recognize Him as our sole source of grace. Well, let us consider now a winsome message. The word winsome simply means attractive, appealing. God broke into our darkness. God broke into the darkness of the night by shining His glory around the shepherds. The glory of God here is displayed by a grace appearing of heavenly beings penetrating the earthly realm. God displays His glory by sending His angels. Angels are simply messengers. Angels appear when they have a message, a message to deliver their message that night. The most winsome message of all. Notice, however, what happens to the shepherds when they see the angels. They fear. Well, more often than not, that's the reaction we see in the Bible when someone sees an angel probably should cause us to question modern depictions of angels. They probably don't help us 
thinking of little chubby babies wielding arrows of love. The apparent peace the the shepherds had was ultimately fickle. It dissipated immediately when the angel appeared. Peace turned into fear. Friends, fear often robs us of peace. It is impossible to experience peace when one is plagued with fear. Fear that is not in the Lord causes us to think that our lives and our world is running wildly out of control, but it's not. Perhaps you've experienced something similar to the shepherds, <coughs> not in the sighting of an angel, but in a sudden loss of stability in your life. You're experiencing a season of peace and a job that was secure was lost overnight. A relationship that we were counting on shattered, perhaps even a divorce. A child raised in the church rebels against God. An unexpected health diagnosis. Perhaps the whole course of your life was once changed by a phone call that you dreadfully received. The angel has an answer to their fear. He gives them the most often repeated commandment in the Bible. He says, fear not. And friends, this is the message still for us today in light of our fears. Fear not. There's no room for fear in Christ. When we experience the perfect love of God, we learn to let his love push all fear out of our hearts. Now, I know you may be saying in your hearts, Pastor Lucas, you have no idea. You may be saying, Pastor Lucas, you don't understand my situation. You don't understand my circumstances. And friends, I probably don't. I'm not standing here presuming to understand everything that happens in your life. What I want to point you to today is not my understanding of your circumstances, but the fact that God understands you. Fear is not simply a switch we can click or it's off. <coughs> No, I know, I understand that. Fear is not overcome with a snap of a finger. No, fear is overcome with the knowledge of God. And this is what the angel does. He teaches the shepherds about God. The angel in this passage <coughs> actually gives the shepherds a reason not to be plagued with fear. He says, fear not for... Here comes the reason. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. In the original language, the angel is literally saying, Fear not, for I bring to you the gospel. 
The gospel is our number one weapon against fear. And this message is not just for the shepherds. It's for all the people. This message is for you today. Here's why. The gospel of Jesus Christ points our eyes beyond our current circumstances. The gospel helps us see that God will redeem all fear, all brokenness, as he points us to the promises he has made in Christ. Therefore, fear not. Believe the gospel. Friend, regardless of your circumstances, if your life is secure in the gospel, the good news of Christ, you can experience peace. And you can experience it today. You can experience experience peace in the midst of turmoil, trouble, trials, and temptations. You can experience peace when faced with unexpected life circumstances. Friend, because Christ was born, you can overcome your fears today and experience the peace of Christ. John 16, 33, I have said these things to you that you may have peace. In the world, you will have peace. Tribulation. Do you see how that's not incompatible? Right? Why? Because Jesus goes on to say, but take heart. I have overcome the world. The promise Christ makes is not that our lives would be free of pain and suffering. The promise that Christ makes is not that our lives would be free of turmoil. No. The promise Christ makes is that even though we will suffer in this world, We must take heart, we must take courage, because our suffering is not forever. He has overcome this world, so we can have assurance that our suffering will not be in vain. Yes, we will cry tears in this earth, and we may cry them our entire lives. But if we are with Christ, they will be wiped away in eternity. Theologian Wayne Grudem was diagnosed with cancer a few years ago. When he was asked if his faith had been challenged by the diagnosis, he answered, last time I checked, Romans 8.28 was still in the Bible. And he said, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. As a matter of fact, friends, suffering is necessary for the Christian. Philippians 3.8 for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Now, now listen to this. In order that I may gain Christ. Do you see how suffering is a prerequisite for gaining Christ? Without suffering, we don't enter the kingdom. In order that, that's a purpose statement. Laying us aside all that this world offers, all the comforts of this world all assurance in things that are other than Christ and running to Christ. That's the purpose of suffering. We gain Christ. We Christians must must be such a peculiar people that even when we suffer, we should suffer well. Even when we are frightened, we should respond well. We should suffer with faith. We should suffer trusting that Christ is who he says he is. And who does Christ say he is? Look at verse 11. Christ is the Savior. So let us consider now a wonderful Savior. His very name, Jesus, means God 
faith. Now, in this picture here, this is an unexpected Savior. When we think of a Savior, we often think of superhero-like figures, strong, powerful, mighty men of valor. But the angel tells the shepherds that they would receive a sign. They would find a baby in a manger, wrapped in swaddling clothes. A baby? A manger? Where is his royal vestments? Where are his royal garbs? What is wonderful about this Savior? What could this mean? Here's what this means. We are a humble people, and we have a humble Savior. The Savior himself is humble. This is a Savior you can come to even if you are a shepherd. Not only did the Savior come to those who are humble, he is a a humble Savior himself. Shepherds, shepherds were utterly familiarized with the scenes on a manger. They knew the sights of it. They knew the smells of it. They knew Jesus had come for them. Imagine how this would be different if the shepherds were told to go to a palace. Or if the shepherds were told go to a castle. But wait. We're not dressed in dignity. We smell bad. Could we go there? Will they even let us in? But no. The Savior was born in a stable. He was laid on an animal trough. What a humble scene. Friends, the manger scene is an invitation for a humble people to come to a humble king. This is good news for us because we are not great, are we? We don't have exuberant bank accounts. We don't know the rich and the famous. If I were to ask who is the most famous person in your contacts, on your phone, you would probably be just like me. I don't really have anybody famous in my contacts. We don't get invited to places often, do we? We're not recognized in the media often. We don't receive complimentary tickets to the World Cup games, although if you have an extra one, I would love to have it. I don't know if you've ever been invited to a party that was fancier than you feel comfortable with. All the dinner table etiquette, more silverware in front of you than you own in your own home. You may have even thought, wow, this is really nice, but I would rather pick up the chicken with my hands. Right? That's the picture here. These people are humble. But they don't come to a savior with crowds. Ostentation. Likes to display all that he has. Even though he owns 
everything. Jesus didn't come to the shepherds expecting them to meet him where he was. No, he condescended. He humbled himself. He took on flesh. He made himself a simple man to bring salvation to simple men. Why? Because we simple people need him. Because we simple people need a savior. In our call to worship today, I read from Matthew 1, verse 21. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? What is the purpose of his name? For he will save his people from their sins. Friends, our greatest fear, the greatest fear we must have in this life is to live and to die in our sins. This is why Jesus came. Our sins, the greatest problem that plague us because sin separates us from God. Sin places us under the righteous wrath of God. Sin robs us of peace. We often have a very light idea of sin. We don't think very deeply of it. We don't think of all the implications and the depth of sinning against an eternally holy God. But if we sin against an eternally holy God, there should be, there must be eternal consequences. The consequences of sin are eternal judgment under the wrath of God in hell with no hope of redemption. Sin is a transgression of the law of God. Sin is rebellion of thought and attitude towards God. Sin is to call good evil and evil good. Sin is the idle mind that should be consumed with God. Sin is the idle hand that should be serving God. Sin is to pursue the desires that God detests. Sin is to build one's own kingdom rather than God's kingdom. And because of this great rebellion, everyone who sins awaits the final and dreadful judgment of God. Jesus' first coming reminds us of his second coming. He came the first time to offer himself for sinners. The angel said, today to you is born a Savior. But friends, Jesus is coming back and this today is going to be exhausted. And when he returns, the day of salvation will be finished. That day, in that day, anyone who has not trusted in Christ will be judged by him. You may have come into this building today to think about Jesus' first coming, but I want you to remember today that Jesus is coming back. Today is the day that you must turn to him in faith and repentance because once that trumpet sounds, friends, it's over. Do not delay in turning to Christ for the salvation of your soul and for your hope of eternal but who is the sinner that needed the Savior? It is you. It is me. Who needs a Savior? I do. And you do. But how can Jesus save you? Here's how Jesus offers himself as the Savior. The little baby we met in verse 12 
born in a manger, wrapped in swaddling cloths, humble, he would go on to live a perfect life, never sin, obey the Father perfectly. That baby makes you an offer today. It's available today. His offer, I offer to you all the credit I receive for my obedience. But wait, there's more. He makes another offer. He offers to take on himself the penalty of your sins. He died on the cross, paying for the sins of those who would believe in him. And he is offering you today to completely cancel the debt of your sin against eternally holy God. But wait, there is more. This little baby would rise on the third day. He would not be defeated by death for the first time. Death experienced defeat. Death wanted to keep that baby in the grave, but today that grave is empty. And friend, if Jesus rose from the dead, we don't need to fear anything, even our greatest enemy, even death itself. Death for the Christian is simply a way home. Death for the Christian is victory because as Jesus rose, we too will rise one day. And friends, this benefit that Christ offers us today is what the Bible calls justification. To be declared righteous, blameless before God on the account of faith in Jesus' righteousness. Romans 5, 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, by believing, not by doing, not by works, we have right now peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is why He is the Savior. This is how He pays for our sins, friends. The only way to have peace with God is by believing in Christ. He justifies the ungodly. And who is the ungodly? You are and I am. But our scene continues, doesn't it? And now we get an even grander picture of the wonderful Savior. Friends, the humility of Christ does not indicate in any way that he lacks glory. No, Christ is the king that invites the shepherds to behold him. But this is also the king to whom myriads and myriads of angels sing. Friends, the babe on a manger is not just another baby like you and I once were. No, this baby on a manger is the God of the universe. The glory of God, the eternal glory of God is the glory that the shepherds saw that night. I was talking to a neighbor of mine a few years ago when I used to live down in Hollywood. He was a, he was a Romanian Jew, and he told me, trying to create a bridge with me, well, we worship the same God. I said to him, Joe, my God is Jesus Christ. And unless you can say that he is your God, we do not worship the same God. That baby is God in the flesh. The baby is the God-man. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, this parallel passage here of darkness. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 
Suddenly, one angel turns into a multitude of heavenly hosts, thousands of angels. And what are they doing? They're praising God. The only right response to God's glory and God's gospel is worship. They ascribe to God the highest glory. Glory to God in the highest. God is beyond our existence. He transcends us in His glory in an infinite way. And yet, the angels also sing of peace on earth among those who please God. God is transcendent beyond us, but He's also enemy. So close. God is far, but yet He's near. His glory reaches the highest heavens, but His peace is very much present on earth today through the display of His glory and through the proclamation of His gospel. But did you notice that the angels don't say that everyone on earth experiences this peace? Peace on earth is for those with whom God is pleased. So, the most important question you need to think about today is, is God pleased with me? On account of your own merit, He is not. On account of your own merit, you will experience no peace on this earth or in the world to come. But if you trust His Son, God is pleased with you. If you trust His Son, peace is not just a future promise. It is a present reality. Remember what I said in the beginning. Peace is not just the absence of conflict, but an experience of wholeness that affects us internally and externally. Why? Because God is ours. So if God is yours, you will experience peace that transcends your circumstances. If you believe in Christ, God is yours. And His peace will be real in your life. At this moment, I want to invite the deacons to come forward. What a great opportunity for us to remember the great Savior that we have, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Yes, He came. Yes, He gave Himself for us. This baby was born to die. And it is His death that we remember in this table before us today. Friends, this is a family meal that we're about to experience, remembering our great Savior, Jesus Christ. If you're a guest with us, we're so glad you're here. If you're not trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ for the salvation of your soul and for your hope of eternal life, we, wanna, we just want to tell you we love you. We respect you so much for being here. And we would respect you so much if you would just let this element pass by you. Don't take this element because the Bible says that if you take this element, not trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and your hope of eternal life, you will drink and eat judgment on yourself. So spare yourself this great judgment. But 
If the Lord is speaking to your heart today and he's telling you, you need to repent and you need to come to Christ, we would love to talk to you. Okay, so we're going to have, I, th I think the sisters are going to be over here at the end of the service. They would love to talk to you about what it means to trust Jesus Christ. A and don't delay. Come talk to us because we would love to affirm your faith through baptism so that you can partake of this table with us very soon as well. Uh, friends, uh, the deacons will in just a moment pass the elements. Remember that the elements are stacked together. So you can separate them. We'll take first the bread and then we'll take the fruit of the vine. And as we observe that, as we prepare ourselves to observe that, let us remember this. This is a time for us to examine our hearts. Are we holding on to sin? Is there sin in our hearts that we're holding on to? This is an opportunity for us to confess this sin. This is an opportunity for us to be reminded Jesus died so that I could be forgiven of this sin. So as the elements go by and as the piano plays, just examine your hearts. If you're holding on to sin, repent. Let go and come to the Lord's table in joy and in participation as we, remi as we remind ourselves we are one in Christ. Wait for me. I will designate a time for us to partake of each element of the Lord's Supper. So at this moment, can I invite the deacons to please stand?